As many new viewers will soon learn, I am on the publishing track for the first book regarding modern masculinity. To write this book, I've needed to research and delve deeper into discourses regarding masculinity. Unfortunately, uh, that discourse is incredibly toxic. When Billie Eilish, in her Vogue 2021 interview, told, expressed that men are very weak, she said it's very easy for them just to lose it. She became a lightning rod for controversy and backlash. Her exact quote was, you expect a dude not to grab you if you're wearing that dress. Seriously, you're that weak. Come on. In the context of that, those photos and those comments became the lightning rod for exactly the kind of controversy an opinionated young woman has. How scandalous, a young woman showing skin. Morons like Steven Crowder were quick to jump on her. But Billie Eilish is right. Yeah, but Billie Eilish is right. Men are very weak. And that, that's why I began writing my book and making this essay. Men are weak because we made them weak. And that brings me to the thesis. Patriarchy, bad. One of the saddest things about patriarchy is the commodification and control of sex. Sex is feminine. I say so with the utmost respect. Whether it's a frivolous hookup or an intimate soul bonding, sex is the physical manifestation of intimacy, decadence, human connection, and emotion. Those aren't inherently masculine traits. In fact, we associate those with women. Society in which women's status is equal or greater than men tends to be characterized by, conf by less conflict, greater social harmony, and higher levels of sexual interaction. Christopher Ryan. Sex is, a used, sex is used as a tool in the creation of intimacy. We use it to define relationships, understand people better, and enjoy our time with other people. Sex is the feminine counterpart to the masculine competitive sports. Bonobos, our closest primate ancestors, have the correct understanding for sexuality. In a society where food is abundant, they live a peaceful life where sex is used uh, to communicate and solve conflicts. Their hierarchy, in contrast to the chimpanzee, is very flat and matriarchal. They engage in homosexual sex so frequently they would make Spartans blush. We don't live in the sex-filled world of the bonobos. We live in the sex-filled world of patriarchy, which isn't so hunky-dory. The masculine is great at commodifying resources. It competes, conquers, and controls. A great incentive if you're trying to compete in a business or a competitive setting. Terrible elsewhere. The history of patriarchy and sex is the story of controlling sex. When the Ten Commandments exclaim, Thy shall not covet thy neighbor's wife. It says so in the same breath as thy shall not covet thy neighbor's cattle or land. The implication is that women are property, that they're commodities. And through most of history, as a key example, rapists were required to make amends not to their victims, but to the fathers and husbands of their victims. Many countries still have laws where rapists can get off scot-free. If uh, can get off scot-free by marrying their victims. If women aren't pro are property, then wronging them isn't the same as wronging a man. Even in more enlightened cultures, women are tightly controlled. Women who exercise their own sexual autonomy are slandered as sluts when they want to enjoy sex, and prudes if they don't. The rule is that a woman's sexuality is only valuable when there is a man to measure it. 
Rating women 1 to 10 is a truly strange way of quantifying beauty, something that we acknowledge is inherently subjective in every other context, but we do it anyway. Speculating on their body count, a way to analyze the scarcity of their sexuality on an open market is both gross and inhuman, but done all the time. If women are inputs in the commodity of sex, they will always be treated as objects of the male gaze. When Billie Eilish pushes back against patriarchy, she's trying to create the space for her to control her own sexuality. She, chooses, she chose to dress conservatively as a child to avoid the sexual predilections of her fans and Drake. Uh, the saddest part of patriarchal control of sex is that sex is miserable. Women aren't really happy because they can't enjoy themselves without social backlash. And men are treated poorly if they don't fit the heteronormative ideal. They gain social utility by treating women as objects to signal their own positions in society. And if the man doesn't want to play that game, then he's facing an, a perpetual uphill social battle. Women aren't really happy. Men aren't happy either. And Billie Eilish is right when she says men are weak. But the story goes far beyond it. She's wrong in how she delivers her message. She ascribes blame when a lot of men are dealt a bad hand by the same social forces keeping her down. The real solution isn't finger-pointing at men who can't control their impulses. It's creating spaces where we can have those healthy relationships with those impulses. Men are weak, but we can be so much stronger. And Daniel, I would love your take on this. I'm curious about, like, first of all, something that stuck out to me was, like, the rating women 1 to 10 thing. So why do you feel like it's, it's uh, gross and inhuman? Because it's something that, like, I feel like, at least me, a lot of people do. So, it's not necessarily gross and inhuman. The rating 1 to 10, what is it trying to signify? It is that we're trying to commodify beauty. We're trying to give it a standard, measure it, you know, put it on a marketplace. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason why their website's like hot or not. Uh, there's Tinder, there's Grinder, all that stuff. It's just us commodifying beauty in the sense that something beautiful can, there can be like an objective scale that goes 1 to 10. Uh, where in reality, our attraction to different things is, is like on a spectrum. You can be both attracted to women who have blonde hair and women who have dark hair. And you can be attracted to them both, but it's very difficult to categorically put them in hierarchies because at different points you could feel different levels of attraction. It's, sex is a very subjective social thing quantifying it in an objective, almost scientific way, pseudoscientific, mm, but I feel like if you will, it honestly doesn't least, make sense and kind of betrays like, the eh. purpose of attraction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not inhuman in the sense that it's very violent or harmful, though it can be harmful to people's self-confidence. It's I, inhuman I, as I it betrays that. a very enterprise. Uh, I understand it's very subjective, place. but I don't think people are trying to, like, objectively rate. Sometimes you're just like, okay, who is this person to you? Like, you know, like, I'll, like, I mean, if in, in math, if something is transitive, mm -hmm. like you can give preference to, if something is transitive and complete and uh, there's like a few like fundamental requirements that I think apply to most ratings, then like it's possible to assign a certain utility to it aka like mm -hmm. a certain number to it so like if it's if you think a person a is more attractive than person b and person b is more attractive than person c and then 
that person A is more attractive than person C, then you're actually allowed mathematically to use like a scale, a utility scale. And so like, I feel like there's utility in, in, in using the scale, like just maybe in your head so there's a big, <laughs> or in so conversation. I, so mm -hmm. that, that is true. It is a matter, we do sometimes use it. We do sometimes use it as a way to order scale, right? We, we can order like, I find this person more attractive than this person, and we can assign an arbitrary number. The problem is we don't really have standards that are objective or consistent, right? You could be attracted to some, uh, like I'll give you an example. Two celebrities, they both could be incredibly beautiful women covered by all men. You, you and I could rate them as different numbers. It's objective to us. But women who share the same characteristics, but for some reason doesn't click with us, maybe they smile in a weird way, maybe they have, uh, they could have other physical characteristics, maybe their social utility is different, maybe they have different personalities. We would find le varying levels of attractiveness. We don't have a cons consistent and set rule. We normally consider that women with smaller noses are more attractive or less noticeable noses are more attractive. But there are many women who have prominent noses and they're still very attractive. So it's very difficult for us to quantify objective standards, but the very fact that we but try very hard But I feel like people who do this is and like, in the honestly, process of commodifying sex. I sometimes do it with my friends just like for fun. <laughs> um, it's, it's not like serious at all. It's literally just like joking, like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Um, mm -hmm. And also like, I think the, the, the word objective is kind of yeah. tricky. Because it's not like there's like objective attractiveness, obviously, because like, you know, depending on who you are, like if I was a snake, I would not find humans attractive. I'd find snakes attractive and we don't find snakes attractive. So mm -hmm. obviously it's beauty in the eye of the beholder. Um, but I think sometimes what we use, what we mean by objective is what, mm -hmm. we, what we estimate is the average level of attractiveness in the eyes of like the human population so it's that there is objectiveness in that i guess yeah that reaches the, mm -hmm. well so that that's an attempt at being objective mm -hmm, but yeah. i would argue that we don't really need to be objective when it comes to beauty yeah i agree i mean right there's no point in being objective to beauty. It's an exercise in futility. Likewise, rating women 1 to 10, it can be totally fun. You could do it for frivolous reasons. It can be completely harmful. The problem isn't, oh, you rate women 1 to 10. It's that rating women 1 to 10 is part of a larger problem, larger narrative of the commodification of sex. You aren't guilty of, of mass egregious crimes against women by rating them 1 to 10. But it's just the same line of thinking extrapolated leads to a lot of the control of women. So uh, I'll give you an example, right? Uh, when we talk about sex, especially when it comes to women, uh, let's take Marilyn Monroe. She was very popular, but she was almost always viewed as a sex object. Every man would covet her. And the fact is she was valuable, not because she could express her own sexuality, not because she chose to. That sexuality was orchestrated. Uh, if you watch the boys like I told you to, there'd be an awesome example I could pull from there. Uh, but in, in general, we see this in media, right? There's a common criticism that a lot of conservative women have towards media is that, oh, if women just flaunt their sexuality, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're empowered. They're objectifying themselves, which is exactly what we should be trying to do. 
when women have control over their own agency, how they're perceived sexually, whether they want to be modest and demure or whether they want to be extravagant and sexual, that should be in the power, that should be in their hands. That sexuality should be yeah. part of agency. I mean, I agree with that, but like, what do you mean by commodity? Does that make sense? I feel like that's, I don't understand how that applies here. So, interesting. So the commodity, I'm using a bit more of a Marxist understanding of commodity, but commodity is that sex is a resource. It is a tool for social utility, right? If I can brag, oh, I had sex with this hot model, right? That provides me some social utility. I get some notoriety in society, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Those things are valuable. And sex sells. You can use sex to market to people, right? Sex has an inherent value trade. in society because we have allowed it to be commodified. It's something oh, that we okay. can trade. And because, yeah, so we use tr- sex as a tool of measurement. So it's essentially but, but a tool of trade. But how is this a commodity? Like, oh, I had sex like with her. I'm more popular than you. Oh, you had sex with her. Oh, that's interesting. And then, yeah, so you would ar- I would argue that anything that can signal status can become a commodity. Right? We understand that gold is used for electronic manufacturing. It's mm-hmm. a vital resource. Uh, but at the same time, we use it to display wealth and opulence. It has a dual function. It has some utility yeah, directly like, to us. That's the, the, fundamental, benefit, but there's the fundamental also social utility in having like a commodity gold is that it can be traded. So how can right. sex be traded on a market? That's what I don't understand. Oh, we trade sex all the time, uh, whether we're talking about an advertising, whether we're talking about media, pornography. Uh, the next topic I'm going to talk about is definitely going to be in the commodification of sex. Uh, prostitution. Uh, we, we have different ways of commodifying sex. Right? E- even, for example, uh, like mm-hmm. I'm pretty yeah. sure you've heard that, oh, you have to mm-hmm. spend so much money on a woman, you have to take her out, and then you have to impress her, and then afterwards, she might have sex with you. There's a weird type of transaction, pseudo-transaction that's going there. The expectation of patriarchy is that women are almost like cattle. They're a commodity. You need to take care of them. You need to treat them well. And then you can reap the reward, which is sex. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you don't treat her well, we'll find someone like else. You and obviously the have cycle to, continues. Like you said. So that's what I mean by the uh, commodification of sex. Sex is a... Treat a woman to- a certain way. You know, like... Obviously, she won't like you otherwise. So, like, I feel like that's pretty inherent. And so, what's wrong with that? That's my question. In woman, if you're a woman, this sucks because you're only you're treated a certain way, privileged or oppressed, because people want to have sex with you. Your boss will treat you in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, every man you encounter will treat you in a certain way. It's very difficult for you to make friendships yeah. with people who want to fuck you because you don't really know are they being nice. To me, because oh, they think I'm a good person, they value me, or they just want to use me for a night and then leave. Right? That's it's not good for interpersonal relationships. And on top of that, it it, it makes mm-hmm. sex very restrictive. Right? If if sex is a commodity, it's like okay, uh, people who want to try alternative ways of sex, alternative lifestyles, for them, they just don't fit into that model. Uh, like our biggest insult for men in polyamorous relationships is that oh they're cucks because someone else has sex with their wives as though that's something weird throughout most of human history sex was very liberated uh christopher ryan in sex at dawn even writes that for the most part 
uh, we would have sex in, with different people, different times. Uh, we'd have different partners, and oftentimes people would share, just as they would share houses, they would share land, they would share partners. And we lived in very sexual communities, and we engaged in different types of sexual activities for pleasure, also for communication. Right now, if we restrict, if we restrict sex to like, oh, a monogamous relationship, one person has control, the other person doesn't, or sex is some sort of commodity that's traded, and you're in this tightly knit hierarchy, you don't get those freedoms. And for a lot of people, I'm, it causes a lot of sadness and loneliness. Okay, very interesting, because on and one hand, I see that you're sort now of... than ever before. Uh, Not in a, a you're sort strict of way where women are expressly property, freedom but a way and, the, the like, way that know, sex is traded um, back and forth. There should be more, you know, give and take with relationships and like, you know, more freedoms with polyamory and stuff like that. But at the same time, you're saying that you don't like commodification, which sort of seems like a contradiction because as of now, it seems like the more free we get with sexuality, the more, mm -hmm. you know, games we have to play, like the rise of Tinder, etc., hookup culture. It seems even more commodification, more of a okay. commodification now. And, and you've, you, you said that, actually. You said it's like getting more and more commodified. So, Well, so the problem isn't that we just... Yeah, we're getting more commodified because we're still... We're being more sexually open within the context of a patriarchal setting where sex is a commodity. So I would posit a different type of world, one that our our ancestors tried to live where sex is something that we have a good relationship with uh i'll get to this later but one of the problems is we tell a lot of people sex is taboo it's adult it should be kept private and at the same time message sex and signal sex in our advertising in our movies and our music everywhere so you create like this weird double think where it's very difficult to understand okay like, what is sexually appropriate, what is not? We become more sexually liberated, but we only become sexually liberated in a way that's uh, useful for us to signal our power or our triumph, our victory. It becomes, it becomes a different mindset to think, okay, sex is just a natural part of being human. I'm just going to have sex. I'm not obsessed with sex. I'm not going to spend hours watching porn. Because if I'm, if I'm feeling horny, I can talk to someone, we can communicate, and maybe they'll have sex with me. We've created barriers and said, oh, trying to get over those barriers is an accomplishment. And we're showing that's our liberation. When in reality, we still have that same terrible relationship with sex where we treat it as a commodity. Ideally, sex just becomes so destigmatized, mm. it's like anything else. Okay, like, so oh, you, you want to go golfing? Sure. So in your oh, ideal you world, you sure. want like... We, we don't treat it that openly. And that's the problem. The sexual liberation that we have now, but... Does that make sense? To an even greater degree, where it becomes so casual that they can like walk up to a girl and be like, hey, you want to have sex? <laughs> or the other way around. Yeah, I mean, they're... they're there are cultures that have done this in the past. In uh, China, there was a culture called the Mitsuo. Uh, there were a group of people. They had the same attitudes towards sex as ancient hunter-gatherers. They were actually wiped out by the Han Chinese as they were expanding uh, during the Song Dynasty, I think. 
uh, because they live sex-free lives and to the patriarchal Confucian Han Chinese. That was a terrible, terrible sin. It's like, how do you organize a society? They were so terrified of it that when they conquered the land, they just killed everyone. One of the worst ethnic cleansings ever. They destroyed their culture, tried to brainwash them, kind of like what they're doing to the Uyghurs right now. Wait, so I have a question. So, why do you think this... Yeah. Like, why does the sexual restrictiveness... Why is it necessarily patriarchal? Because, you know, it doesn't necessarily just benefit so, men. So this, this has to do with evolutionary goals. In patriarchal societies, at least one of the goals is that you can control your bloodline, right? If you can control your wife's sexuality, uh, how sexual your daughter is, uh, and all the women in your family or all the women you know, that means you can control like your offsprings, your name, your family tradition. The reason why it was so important in both India and China to have a male son is because he would carry the name. He would carry the family bloodline. That, con that need, that intense desire to exert your power over multiple generations, effectively become immortal, that's part of the patriarchy, and that's what creates the incentive structures to control women. In a matriarchal society, people don't really care. The question of paternity isn't, oh, whose blood flows through uh, my veins? The question of paternity is, oh, who was there to raise me? Who was there to take care of me? Who, who can I call a dad? And we've seen this before. Like Christopher Ryan goes through the uh, goes through the evidence about this. Almost across the board, matriarchal societies are more peaceful. Sex is more pleasurable. There's less violence. The only downside of being in a matriarchal society is that if a patriarchal society finds you, uh, because they're much better at war. Mm. But people's lives are better when they don't have a patriarchal understanding of sex, where sex is not tied to power. It can't be. That's a problem. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of some... It, I can't really explain exactly what problems I have with this line of thinking, but I'm, I'm still thinking. Yeah, hey, we'll we'll get back to it. Maybe next time you can have an entire uh, you can have an entire video dedicated to you just debunking <laughs> okay. on your. Own. It's like this man I've known for a long time, but he's a fucking moron. I'm gonna debunk him, and I I'd be welcome to it. Again, I when I ask the questions of sex, I'm thinking about how do we best understand sex to create a better society. For me, I, I just really care about how do we become happier? How do we become more free? And so we might be free to sell sex. We might be free to consume sex, but the very action of buying and selling and consuming, mm. that might okay, end up making us unfree. I actually think unfree. I remember what uh, counter-arguments I was thinking. Um, so I don't really... Well... I can see like how it doesn't actually, well, this freedom of sex doesn't actually necessarily benefit women from an evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. So obviously if you're, a, well, if, if, if sex is completely free and, you know, there's mm -hmm. no societal limitations to having sex. Well, 
there yeah. would be some ethical ones like you would need to you can only have yeah, sex with people who can consent to it um this would actually benefit men to some extent it would benefit the the um the more attractive men it would benefit everyone in the sense that like well if there's no monog- monogamy then like there's no reason why for example like so so here's the fundamental difference I guess between men and women is that men can impregnate mm-hmm. multiple women at the same time uh yeah. while women can only um have a child like once every year or once every 9 months and so yeah it's more advantageous for a man to spread their sperm spread their seed and impregnate like more women than for a woman to uh you know have sex with multiple men because she has to choose like the the best man that she can because there's much more incentive for her to maximize this one because she only she has a limited number of eggs she has she has to you know raise this child and um you know okay so so how does it... uh, okay i'm going to push back on this in two ways one um if you have a tribe where there's only one man and 50 women and he impregnates all 50 women the next generation of those tribes uh, there's going to be a lot of incest it's not always advantageous for a person to spread their seed widely because then down the line that'll create genetic problems in their offspring yes. i think you can acknowledge that right you want more diversity in, ge- in the gene pool but second we don't really want to live on like a appeal to evolutionary advantage because right now we live in a 21st century uh the goal isn't to produce more people no i don't think that's the goal anymore i think the goal is to produce the best possible people yeah but that, that's And not I, my point I think though this type my point of society, is that like the mm-hmm. evolutionary uh advantages or incentives create ingrained motivations in our psychology and so like i don't i don't know how powerful those are because we have matriarchal societies and if we even talk about evolutionarily we are equidistant in terms of the evolutionary tree from chimpanzees which is a very patriarchal hierarchical society and bonobos which is a matriarchal society we're equidistant from both of them and really what separates them both in their evolutionary line is their abundance of resources where people don't have to fight over resources and there's an abundance the bonobos are much more successful they live happier lives chimpanzees when I mean, they they live in rougher terrain they have fewer resources they have to be more brutal to survive in those conditions we're humans we're living in a place where we're soon going to be in a post post scarcity or at least in terms of starvation society it makes more sense for us to copy even evolutionarily the progress of the bonobos because they seem to be happier and a lot of this is just conditioning we're taught through patriarchy that a woman's value is x and a man's value is x that's not something we inherently come up with we're reinforced through media through school through public education through uh our parents those are ideas that are taught and i think we can teach better ideas mhm yeah i definitely agree there's like so- social conditioning to this um there are cultures where this type of mindset has worked i mean they've been wiped out sadly and they're not very populous uh but that's because generally speaking societies that are very peaceful get destroyed by societies yeah. that are very warlike so 
but we don't want to live mm-hmm. in a society that's warlike anymore. We're kind of past that in, in human evolution. Yeah. So have I opened your mind? So have I opened your mind? Yeah, it's very interesting. I'll have to look. You have to send me some of the the uh, the stuff on the cultures that were matriarchal and because that's very interesting because it sort of dispels this strict like evolutionary way of thinking. Uh, there's this great quote from the book. Uh, or what's this? What uh, ten thousand years ago, humans made the jump to agriculture, and we have never recovered since. And I think agriculture, the need to commodify land to build hierarchies, that was the starting point to start starting the patriarchal line of succession. Because who gets the land? People who conquered it. Who will keep the land? The sons of the people who conquered it. So I think uh, we can definitely go deeper into this. Um, I would love to go deeper into it. Um, and I think you are going to be definitely more open-minded because you understand that looking at things from disjunct evolutionary perspectives or disjunct perspectives in general is super beneficial, which is why I think you want to tell me about why psychedelics have that same mm. effect. How it has the same effect? Uh, <laughs> well, I do have many things to say about psychedelics. So I'll go on to my mm-hmm. spiel. All right, lay it on me. A very unique quality of psychedelics that separates it from other classes of drugs is that it has extremely unpredictable effects on the user's subjective experience. If you read the countless number of trip reports on Reddit, Arrowhead, and other forums, it's very hard to find a consistent pattern where you can say, okay, this is exactly what psychedelics do. Some people endure what is known as a bad trip, like me, in which it feels like you are constantly snapping in and out of a delirious nightmare, while others experience this blissful, profound, life-changing moment of utter love and gratitude. Some people even go permanently crazy. They become depersonalized, derealized for years, and continue to suffer in psych wars to this day, while others get a taste of the non-dual experience, starting them on their spiritual path. I think this polarity in experience, this spectrum from delusion and terror to bliss and clarity, is what makes psychedelics so dangerous and risky, but also so full of potential. There are many questions that we have to answer before we can unlock the true healing power of psychedelics. We first have to figure out who is most at risk for going insane. We know at the very least that people with a family history of schizophrenia should not take psychedelics. But I honestly think you can go crazy on psychs, even if you don't have any latent mental health illnesses. So we need to figure out how psychedelics affect thought process across multiple levels of analysis. We need to know how it interacts with different personality types, how past experiences and PTSD affect your experience, how ideas, religion, set, setting, mood, music, the people you're surrounded with during the trip, etc., how those affect it. So from my experience, I believe that I can have a beneficial trip if everything is set perfectly. If I'm in the right mood, if I'm with the right people, at the right place, etc. But that's only after I've taken it multiple times and 
after trial and error and making mistakes and going through bad trips, and I could have very well been one of those people who are in uh, in psych wards. So um, I don't think everyone should have to play this game of Russian roulette to figure out whether psychedelics works for them and to find healing in psychedelics. I think these risks should be taken at the level of clinical trials and not for the public to bear. But happily, I think we're in the midst of this development. A new psychedelic renaissance is finally taking place and more and more promising research is being done. With all this being said, I still think that psychedelics probably still have a higher expected utility than, for example, utility, uh, sorry, than, for example, alcohol. But psychedelics are scarier because the variation per dose is much wider. What I mean by this is alcohol has much more predictable marginal effects psychologically. You won't suddenly go crazy, but it creeps onto you because if you get addicted and become an alcoholic, it can ruin your life. But that takes a long time and in the meantime, it feels like you have control. On the other hand, psychedelics can make you go crazy after one dose. It's something that you feel and notice is happening to you within a span of a few hours. You don't feel like you have control because you don't make the conscious decision to pick up another beer night after night that you do with alcohol. You're just shot into a delirium that you cannot escape. So this is sort of kind of like the reason people are more afraid of plane crashes than car crashes. Because on a plane, you have absolutely no control and you're at the mercy of the pilot. Whereas when you're behind the wheel of a car, you make each conscious decision by yourself. So there's sort of like this false sense of control that makes you feel secure. But it actually turns out it's more dangerous to drive a car than to fly a plane. So I think it's interesting that the law and the culture actually takes into account this illusion of control as a valid reason for viewing alcohol as being safer than psychedelics. So... In the, in the hypothetical future, I wonder if, for example, if statistics come out that only 1% of people who take psychedelics go crazy, but 5% of people who drink alcohol become alcoholics, and whether or not the public would actually feel safer or still feel safer with alcohol, merely because of this false sense of control. Uh, alas, everything leads back to the question of free will. So, Anirudh, what do you think is the answer to this question? Okay, so I have a couple things to push back. So I, I, I like your analysis that you're saying that obviously things that look scarier are things that we legislate against, right? Plane crashes, scarier than car crashes, but car crashes kill way more people and more likely to kill people. But that's not really the reason why psychedelics are banned. A big reason for why psychedelics are illegal in the United States is because of racism and the drug war. Uh, Native American tribes had rituals around ayahuasca and other psychedelics. And a way to destroy their culture was by criminalizing them and making it impossible to get there. Uh, in the, we know this, right? Uh, top, campaign spokesperson, uh, top campaign advisor for Nixon and later chief of staff in the White House openly admitted that one of the motivations for starting the war on drugs was to criminalize demographics that they could lose. That would be hippies and African-Americans. Find the drugs that they use, uh, whether it be crack for African-Americans and marijuana for um, the anti-war left, you would break their communities down, imprison them, 
and purposefully make it difficult for them to engage in society to reduce their power so that you could win. And a lot of the times we used psychedelics, uh, we, we fought against psychedelics not because of the actual medical merit of them by themselves, but because of the cultures that they were attached to. Yeah, I agree with that as well. So uh, that's one place where I would push back on. And I think the problem with something like alcohol is that it's very chemically addictive. Um, there's a, actually a study that I include in my book where we, I found the analysis that if for every 10% increase in the concentration of alcohol in a region in the United States, the domestic abuse goes up by 28%. That's absolutely astounding. But alcohol, uh, the way we trade it, the way we sell it, we can predict how many people are going to fall sick, uh, how many people are going to become alcoholics, how many people are going to abuse their wives and intimate partners. We can predict all of those things. With psychedelics, it is very hard to predict, and I give you that. We don't have a lot of good data on psychedelics, and most of the medical trials we do show that it can be under the right circumstances with talk therapy, with controlled environments, can create uh, benefits in healing people and fixing their mental health. And I, I do agree that if you're going to do psychedelics, you should be doing it responsibly. Where I would push back the most on with you is the idea that there, that there is some sort of terror, there's some, some sort of fear in just experimenting even under bad circumstances. And I think we've had different experiences with trips, so we have different perspectives on this. I'm very much in the laissez-faire uh, understanding of psychedelics, which know what you're getting into, be educated, make sure that they are safe. No, no one's screwing you and your supplier isn't screwing you. But trying them, you should try to create, you should try to experiment with different types of environments. Because I think what will work for you probably won't work with me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we do more medical research, but I don't think that medical research is the panacea that you're looking for. There are a lot of incentives within the pharmaceutical industry, for example, to keep a lot of psychedelics illegal because they seem to be doing a better job at treating depression, uh, mental health problems than a lot of psychiatric drugs. Yeah. So I think that a lot of the reasons why these things would be illegal is not necessarily because of social perceptions of them, but rather the economic and political interests in keeping them illegal. Yeah, I, I actually used to... 100% agree with your your narrative and uh, I used to be um, you know very hippie about this but I've heard a lot more stories and you know trip reports mm -hmm. in which it's actually not as psychologically stable as you would think it is and I think I think a greater proportion of this stigma is actually through social perception than you actually think because I've also like talked to a bunch of people about this recently actually and they've known people who have actually like gone pretty crazy like my friend told me um, his like frat brother took LSD and then <laughs> he went he ran around naked on Sheridan Road which is like the main road 
on our campus and got and like was fighting the police <laughs> and now he's he um apparently he just started going off about singularities for like and he's still going off about it even like a year later and he's in a psych ward and yeah he's pretty much like screwed himself over so the thing is i can like completely understand how that's possible because i went pretty insane in my trip but luckily i actually had like a positive ending to it and um i'm 100 back to normal after like a day or two so but you know that's not actually necessarily the case for everyone and some people can actually have mm-hmm. long-term effects and i was listening to a podcast with frank yang and he was talking about how mm-hmm. he has a friend after taking ayahuasca that like is still depersonalized after two years yeah and that's oh, really wow. scary because depersonalization is freaky it's basically when you you don't feel like you're in your, yourself you feel like you're like a character riding with within your body and you feel like your identity is completely shattered and i had a similar experience but obviously it's just temporary uh but yeah it can definitely be long term and that's very frightening and i think like when you figure out, like why this happens you know like why does it happen to some mm-hmm. people why does it not happen to other people why are some people so you know have such blissful experiences and some people you know they fuck up their life so uh- I'm going to push back on this because the way you're approaching this is the same way that a lot of people kind of approach vaccines, which is the uncertainty prevents them from analyzing all the benefits, I presume. So I think that it is possible that a lot of psychedelics can have bad effects, right? Ayahuasca is not the same as psilocybin. If that's not the same as LSD, that's not the same as, uh, I forgot, acid. We we have thousands of psychedelics, not the same as a nutmeg. But I think that until we have better and broader research on exactly how dangerous they are, it's a little difficult to say that psychedelics are scary in, a ten, in the sense that they're dangerous to people, that they can depersonalize, right? I, I think you would acknowledge that... Uh, that any medicine, like an Advil, which can cause nausea and vomiting and diarrhea for people, which could kill people, especially if they're younger and smaller, we acknowledge that that's a very rare risk for a pop- common med- medicine that's used mm-hmm. a lot. And I think psychedelics, we need to have the understanding that, okay, uh, we still need to do more research on them. We need to figure out exactly how safe it is. Though every study that is shown, psychedelics tend to be so much safer than alcohol, tobacco, uh, even weed. Really? Weed? So, yeah, uh, like, I mean, people, there's a huge case in Colorado where uh, people get behind the wheel of heavy machinery while they're high and they end up killing people. Mm. Uh, that, there seems to be lower chances of that happening with psychedelics. It could be because those psychedelics are uh, not as popular as weed. And maybe if they become popular, uh, vehicular deaths resulting Mm. from psychedelics might increase but from what it seems the systemic problem of perpetual depersonalization going completely insane we don't really have that in any epidemiological reports we don't really have that in any uh scientific survey or scientific study that has shown that 
So, it's very difficult for me to say that psychedelics are dangerous when there is no evidence of them That's being the dangerous. That's the thing that really and, confuses me because I actually... I could not find evidence either. Like, there's no scientific evidence of, like, the negative effects. It, it, if you search up, like, psychedelics now, like, in our day and age, our culture, it's all positive, right? Mm -hmm. You rarely see, like, some fear-mongering. And, and everyone, like, says that... From yeah, 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 exactly. scientific journals, Everyone says least. that, you know, all the fear-mongering was just because of, you know... There's just lies the government made to, you know, suppress uh, other cultures, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we know from anecdotal experience, from trip reports, that there are cases. And it just seems like, it's, it's kind of weird because usually you would find the negative effects in scientific literature and people gloss over it. But it, it's kind of the opposite here where anecdotal reports are mixed but it seems that the scientific literature is actually very happy-go-lucky which so doesn't really make sense to me there could be reasons for that there could be a lot of good reasons for that one uh, when scientists are conducting experiment experiments they're doing so in controlled settings and more important they're controlling what substances they use i think you're aware of how dirty certain supplies can be on the black market what if psychedelics cut with other things like fentanyl or uh other drugs which shouldn't be mixed together are being taken together and that's what's causing the negative side effects mm -hmm. right that could be biasing the data in, in one direction the anecdotals uh, anecdotes in one direction um the environment that people take them in the mental state that they take them in there's so many confluence of different factors that could be skewing the anecdotes which in a responsibly done scientific study are not happening. So I think that if you do emulate psychedelics in the places where it's legal, of course, uh, in the same way that a lot of scientific studies with psychedelics have been done, I think that might be the most responsible way to do it, first of all. And I think that's a way that you can avoid a lot of the anecdotal fear-mongering. Because how many people actually take psychedelics responsibly? Yeah, not many. And how many don't? Yeah. Uh, I can say from personal experience, I did not take them responsibly. So, I mean, I was not completely yeah. irresponsible, but not Here's perfectly the thing. responsible. I, I pretty either. much agree like 90% with what you're saying, but do you think we should allow everyone to try it or allow everyone to, you know, it, it to be like completely legal for 18 year old and above or 21 year old and above? Uh, or, see, I'm. 100% on board having, you know, guided therapy sessions with psychedelics, for example. But I'm not sure if it would be mm -hmm. responsible to open it up to the general public with no restraint. Like, you can go to a weed store and, like, buy shrooms or acid. What do you think about that? Yeah, so, so I think this is where we differ. This is where my politics come in very easily. I'm a libertarian socialist. I want people to be as free as possible. If people want to buy cocaine... I want to make sure that they can do so responsibly, right? I would regulate it, I would tax it, I'd make sure it's done properly, that the supplies are clean. But if people wanted to buy acid, all right, let's go, let's do it. If they want to, I'm not going to stop them from it. I'm going to make sure that they do it safely, right? 
I'm going to make sure that any time that they buy asset, it's regulated. Uh, they're not going to, they're, they're going to get what they pay for. They're those consumer protections. But I want people to be free. And we, at least we know this, right? At least with most substances, making something illegal doesn't make the demand go away. It makes the demand go underground, which I think is much more dangerous. Yeah. Right? Uh, I actually view it in kind of the same way as abortion. I consider abortion murder. But I also recognize a world where abortion is legal is much better than a world where it's illegal. Mm -hmm. Because when people have back alley abortions, the cost to society, the cost to human life is far greater. I'd rather have something be done out in the open so where we can treat it properly, like Portugal and mm -hmm. their drug model, than uh, what we currently do, which is pushing everything underground. And I think this comes down to a fundamental question of human freedom. Are, I believe that people have the right to put in their body whatever they want to put in. I believe that they should be educated, that there should be protections, that they should not be scammed. But I want them, if they have the full information, I want them to do what they want to do. And I would encourage in creating systems that allow them to do so. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not even a question about whether psychedelics or drugs should be legal, or even hard drugs should be legal. It's a matter of freedom for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tend to agree with that as well. Um, I also know like um, hard drugs aren't even that hard to come come across. Like cocaine, you can probably find it in like half of the frat houses here. <laughs> like I know people who do it. Unfortunately, like, it's it's actually yeah, just underground. It's not that hard to find. So. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have, I'm not sure, here's the thing, like, how much trust should we have in the public in understanding the risks of it and doing it responsibly and, like, learning from, you know, like, what's to stop some, I guess that also applies to underground, so, but obviously, like, making it legal makes it more likely for it to happen, so I guess that's the main thing. I'd push back mm. on that because at least in Colorado, they found that after they legalized marijuana, teenage usage of marijuana decreased by about 17%, oh, wow. I believe. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. Kids like to do things that are cool and edgy. If you make marijuana legal and you, you see your parents doing marijuana, it's no longer cool and edgy. <laughs> it's true. lame. But I, I, th I think this is the fundamental question about freedom. We trust people to drink alcohol. We trust people to be in places where they have the opportunity to both drink alcohol and drive. A lot of them make poor decisions, but most people make good decisions, right? In economics, we assume that most people are rational actors, that they act in their self-interest. I think we can make that same assumption here. We can assume that most people will do a little bit of research before they find out what they get into. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is ultimately like a question of personal agency. People have the right to protect themselves. People have the right to inform themselves, and people should have the right to put whatever they want in their body. And whether or not people are capable of doing that, that becomes a place of public policy. If we notice that people are not getting the full information, then it makes entire it makes so much sense for us to do public policy campaigns, PSAs, mm -hmm. to do that, right? I'm fine with making smoking legal. I'm fine with making tobacco legal. But I am also fine with putting packaging on tobacco that says expressly if you smoke this your chance of cancer will increase and you will die right i'm fine with sending that message 
right? We're informing the consumers. We're creating social policies. We're creating social pressures. We're not stopping them from exercising their rights. Mm-hmm. Public policy should exist in order to condition good outcomes, not to restrict freedoms. Hmm. Or not to restrict total okay. freedom. So, hmm. we should commodify this. Commodify the... It's already commodified. We just need to commodify it properly. Yeah. Then, yeah. I think this... And look, oh, you were saying? I, I was reading some of your essays. Um, you talked about pornography, right? So, yeah. That's a very interesting thing because if you're, you know, libertarian about this, you'd not care about the, or, well, you would care about it, but you would trust the people to make the right decisions on what they, um, you know, what they watch online. But do you think it's good that that's the case? Do you think it's good in that, you know, like 10 year olds are being, blasted with advertisements of, you know, titties. So that's the thing, right? Um, it, it matters in how you handle it. And I think from one sexual topic to another, let's get into the hot tub meta. Uh, Daniel, do you, do you know what the hot tub meta is? Well, I read the article. Did you no, know about it before 24 hours ago? No. Uh, I envy you. The Hot Tub Meta is a phenomenon on the streaming platform known as Twitch. The platform is the home of streaming Let's Plays and other video game-related content. In recent years, its IRL section has grown and it's now the hotbed of the latest wannabe internet stars. Hopefully one day the dialectic will be on Twitch. <laughs> yes. Soon. Metas, as they're colloquially known, are strategies for attractive women to gain uh, attention on the trending pages. The hot tub meta has turned the front page into, of Twitch into Hot Tub Central, where scantily clad women hang out in hot tubs. And it's absolutely crazy. When the front page of the biggest streaming site resembles the pop-up window of a cam girl site, you have a bit of a situation. According to the Twitch Terms of Service, partial nudity is prohibited unless it's within the context of... That's why you can wear a bikini on the beach and stream yourself, and that would be fine. But if you took off your shirt in the comfort of your own room, that would not be fine. Uh, This context-dependent rule leaves a lot to interpretation and has created the space for these types of metas and different strategies to gain attention. Here's kind of the problem. Uh, Right now, we live in the advent of a lot of new parasocial relationships, and that's a new development in human psychology. It's really impossible to grasp the gravity of having thousands of fans you will never talk to, but at the same, uh, you'll never meet, but they will talk about you in personal and intimate ways. As media has become more sophisticated and interactive, the strength of these relationships have become far more intrusive. When Princess Diana passed away, millions of people entered public mourning for a woman they never met. They did so because she commanded such a powerful and intimate presence through the television box that people couldn't help but view her as a friend or even a cool aunt. That one-way relationship is the, it was real to the millions of fans who read her interviews, copied her outfits, and envisioned themselves 
as similarly liberated women. Live streaming has made that intimacy more accessible than ever, and Twitch is just one avenue. The issue with Twitch is that its demographics skew young. 71% of Twitch users are under 35, and 21% are under 18. There are a few problems with these numbers. First off, kids under 13 are definitely lying about their age. It's impossible to find out how many children are actually on the platform, but it's safe to say that it's a lot more than we expect, and we don't really want them to be exposed to Cam Girl Central. But it's really not that simple. Porn is everywhere. 37% of the internet is porn. Whether or not it's on Twitch should be irrelevant, right? This is the complication. Uh, in America, we do a terrible job of introducing sex to children. We simultaneously teach them that it is an adult and taboo activity while also blasting their eyeballs and eardrums in media. This double thing leaves them a lot with incongru incongruent and incohesive understandings of sex. And it doesn't help that red states like conservative Texas prohibit comprehensive sex ed, leaving abstinence-only education, which has been repeatedly been proven to lead to higher teen pregnancies. We are Germany, a country where kids learn how to put condoms on bananas at the blossoming age of six. We not only inadequately inform children, we misinform them. Only 15 states require that sex ed is medically accurate, and I can attest that, to this day, I still have no idea what the fuck a vulva is. Most young people are the... For most young people, the first source of knowledge is of sex is porn. Pornography as an artistic medium now super, uh, has superseding, uh, does not have superseding obligations to educate its viewers on consent and biology. It is entertainment, and a terrible example for the real world. Just as you wouldn't learn to box from Rocky, you shouldn't learn sex from Johnny Sins. But a lot of young men are bereft of better options. With live streaming, we are creating a space for more misinformation. If, if women respond sensually and sexually to young boys, flooding their bank accounts with donations and requests, we teach young men that sex is transactional and commodified. I don't blame the women. Sex work is still work. But the process of chasing the bag, they are contributing to the harmful environment for kids. This also hurts content creators that abstain from the hot tub meta by scaring away advertisers from the platform as a whole. The solution that Twitch has implemented is complicated. In response to the advertiser backlash, Twitch demonetized the hot tub streams and created their own hot tub category in parallel to their Just Chatting, which is their most popular IRL category. The latter is a band-aid on the bullet wound, and the former is a real problem. If Twitch arbitrarily enforces its TOS, it creates a system where platform where the platform if Twitch arbitrarily enforces its terms of service, it creates a system where the platform becomes a publisher and decides winners and losers. It's great for Twitch and advertisers because their brand won't be tainted by sex work and terrible for the women who are trying new strategies to break out. A real solution would need to create barriers for children to access adult content. On the libertarian side, you could just click a checkbox to verify your 18 plus age to get your cam girl fix, or create a more intensive verification system that asks for government ID to access for adult content. A company like Pornhub would never do the latter. It would sunder traffic to their website, but Twitch might get away with it. 
It was popular before women lost their clothes, and it's good chance it's going to stay popular after they put them back on. And Daniel, I'd love your thoughts on this, because this is a very controversial topic right now in the internet community. Yeah, so I like the argument that regardless of whether the, the whether Twitch has like a you know filtering service where they prevent children from accessing the hot tub network, peop, uh, children are mm-hmm. still capable of typing in Pornhub.com and watching porn anyway. So mm-hmm. in terms of the social uh, cost of of having pornography or like you know like cam girls on your Twitch site, it doesn't actually mm-hmm. make a huge difference since the supply of porn is so great anyway and easy access. It's sort of like mm-hmm. the drug thing where um, if you prevent people from buying legal marijuana, they can just ask their friends. You know, it doesn't actually prevent anything. But I guess from a business mm-hmm. point of view, they're, it's still rational for them to create this barrier because maybe they're marketing it towards children or yeah. you know like people who shouldn't be yeah. the advertisers are the money makers and yeah the advertisers so like you don't want to promote yourself or you don't want the the, the company to morph into only fans so <laughs> those are some of my thoughts what do you think so so Here's the thing. We need to get a bit deeper than that, right? It, whether or not Twitch becomes the next Pornhub is kind of irrelevant. That's true. From a business perspective, they probably don't want to be. But here's kind of the problem on the social trend, right? I'm not against Twitch making that decision. They're a platform. They can do whatever they want. Uh, ideally, I'd prefer if they did stuff that was in the general be- welfare of society. If not, then that's where we as individuals and we as a government uh, will have to step into place. My problem with porn uh, and Twitch in general is, especially because Twitch is very interactive, like a woman will scream out your name, oh, thank you so much, blah, 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 and then she'll make the heart sign. This is something that some of them have done. They made like a heart sign where they squeeze their (laughs) breasts together and say thank you for the donation. Simple stuff like that. But for like a young, impressionable child, especially a young man, that means something because if that's the only interpersonal interaction with sex, it's one thing to watch porn, but that's just a thing there in front of you. It's not interacting with you. If the first interaction you have with sex is one that's transactional, you kind of reinforce the idea that yeah, sex exactly. is commodified. And you recreate those same harms that I mentioned about earlier. I want people to have good relationships with sex. And I think we need to do a better job of educating young people. And I think if Twitch really wants to make a big difference, here's what they should do. They should create like some sort of series that gives sex ed for free. Or some sort of tool that gives sex ed for free that at least creates some sort of environment for children to understand what they're looking at. Now, I think it's a band-aid on a bullet wound. We need larger societal trends for that to happen. Uh, But I think we need to push for better understandings of sex and better education in regards to the use of sex and expression of sex than just whether putting it behind a paywall or throwing it away or banning it from the platform. Because here's the problem. Uh, Twitch discriminates against uh, different people. Uh, If men show nudity, it's less acceptable than if women show nudity. 
so there's a discrimination and arbitrary nature nature of how these platforms in, enforce their content, and it's very difficult for a cohesive strategy in order to deal with this. And I think dealing with that is a little tough. Yeah, I think I also recently found out about this thing where like girls, um, you know, if someone donates, they actually interact with the with the donator and their online fans. I actually didn't know about that until recently, but yeah, that's kind of it's kind of sad that like they're so desperate for attention and affection that like they have to it's basically like prostitution except to a lesser degree i mean it, yeah. it is prostitution in all yeah. but the most physical way but again sex work is work so, um, there's a demand for something people will pay for it it's a sad do you state think of prostitution should be legal Yes, uh, for multiple reasons. One, I think it'll make it a lot harder for women to be trafficked. Uh, there's a big yeah. problem, at least for sex workers, is that uh, if they're abused by one of their clients, it's impossible to go to the police. Because the police find out, they'll, they'll get arrested. Mm. So you you can... It's why sex workers have such a high rate of being murdered. Why sex workers are uh, dealing with uh, higher rates of sexual assault. It's because they're in a place where their work yeah. is so illegal that people can abuse them. Uh, if so, again, same thing as drugs. If something is brought into the public sphere and regulated properly, you make it a lot difficult for abuse to happen. Um, it's. I am hoping that if sex in the world where sex works is legal, the trafficking of children for sex is going to be a lot less. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people who would go into uh, less savory places might end up just going to more legal yeah. ones where we can verify that people are a certain age to consent to sex work. Uh, again, I want people to have good relationships with sex. Making it illegal, controlling sex, doesn't fix that problem. It really yeah. doesn't. So how does this relate to Twitch? Because um, if you think prostitution should be legal, then do you, do you think the hot boxes should be freely available. So one thing being legal and everything goes are, I think, two different levels. Being Sex work should be decriminalized and legalized, but there should also be systems to make sure that it's done properly. Uh, like, I would love that if to access adult content, you needed to prove that you were an adult beyond just checking a box. Steps like that would be more useful for keeping adult content away from children who aren't there to understand it. That's one strategy. We could have the larger societal strategy of do what Germany does and start teaching sex ed to kids as young as six, right? Because at that point, um, like I want you to imagine this, right? Kids can look at kissing on screen and not think, oh my God, that's so taboo, blah, blah, blah. Some Most kids will actually just look at that and think, oh, ew, gross, right? But they, they see kissing from a very young age. They know what it is, right? Uh, if we do the same with sex, and kids will just be like, ugh, sex, so boring. That would be like a perfect outcome. We want kids to not like, like the idea of sex. But they should also know what it is. One of the best arguments for decriminal, uh, teaching comprehensive sex at as young as possible is that you, you give children tools to explain if they're being abused. A lot of children are abused by family members, uh, people, adults in their lives, people at their church. 
because they don't have the tools to explain what is happening to them. And by the time mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. escalates to a point where it causes serious harm, it's too late. We yeah. can't really do much to repair them. If we give children the tool to ex uh, the knowledge to explain what's happening to them and the power to fight for themselves, that advocacy is very important. When I talk about freedom, I want people to and have their own freedom, but to be able to fight for their, themselves. Right? I'm, I want children as young as nine years old to learn how to handle firearms, but I want to make sure that that's done in a safe and responsible way. Because if children understand from a young age that firearms are dangerous, that, oh, they're not toys, that you can't play with them, that you should have proper trigger discipline, you shouldn't point them at people, then we start creating the environment where they don't abuse it, where a kid doesn't see his dad's gun and think, oh, that's cool, and end up mm -hmm. shooting himself. Yeah. I want, I want to educate properly. And I think that we do a very bad job with pornography because for most children, pornography is a teacher and it's a very bad one. Do you think there's negative effects of, <clears throat> of, so I've always been a little bit confused about why exactly parents don't allow their children to know about sex until a certain age. Like, other than the fact that, like, you obviously don't want your your kids to just, like, have sex with people <laughs> when they're, like, you know, before they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, other and do you think there's any, like, negative psychological effects of, like, for example, a kid getting into porn at, like, 13 years old or something like that? I think there are a lot of psychological effects to porn, but a lot of them happen with us not having a good relationship to it, right? What is the real difference in terms of like, uh, aside from like pregnancies and STDs, what's the real difference between kissing someone See, and fucking them? See, that's the problem. I think there might be like a, because sex is so pleasurable and so powerful, there might be potential for some deeper psychological problems if a kid like even if we do it right and mm -hmm. like educate them with like you know so that they know exactly what they're getting into like they know exactly like how to prevent stds use condoms stuff like that like there still might be mm -hmm. psychological problems but i'm not sure of that i don't i don't know if that's actually the case so I, it's hard to say that there are going to be psychological problems for that because at least other countries that do comprehensive sex ed, uh, even, even, even if you look at states in the United States, uh, Mississippi has the second highest level of uh, teen pregnancies and um, among the highest rates of STD transmission among teenagers. They have the worst sex ed program of any state in the country. States that have good comprehensive sex ed, uh, places like... Uh, leave what uh connecticut uh oregon they're very good and at least there teen pregnancies are lower stds are lower a lot of the measurable characteristics a lot of the measurable harms are lower when we introduce sex to kids younger in a more cohesive way so there could be psychological effects of teaching children what sex is at such a young age but i think either they're so small and barely measurable or they're so massively outweighed by all the social benefits that happen. Children who are abused when they're young are more likely to engage in sexual activity when they're younger, more likely to engage in riskier sexual activity, and more likely to enter depressive places. 
-hmm. So I think that any way that you slice it, the safety that happens by giving children a, a an avenue to fight for themselves and advocate for themselves, yeah, is necessary. Right? Because look, a child will understand, will learn what sex is the first time they log online. Like they're going to know if they're on the internet enough times, they'll know what porn mm -hmm. is. They'll know what sex is. So right. So I think the damage is going to be done either way. I'd like to minimize the damage. So I look at this as a harm. So I have a standpoint. question for you. So. In the future, if you have kids and you're watching a rated R movie mm -hmm. or something, and let's say they're like 10 years old, will you be like, yo, little kid, like, cover your eyes? Like, <laughs> will you do that? I'm just curious. And like, so, if I, I so, think, I think this why? is the important thing. Because I think that's I think this is the telling. important thing. Uh, so there's a big difference between just the topic and an abstract and the context in which it's in, right? A child can understand from a very young age what death is, but showing them a graphic dead body, probably not the best thing because that can psychologically scar them. You're giving it to them in a form that's not very instructive to them. That's not very palatable. You're giving them more information that they can handle and that they have the tools to handle. So likewise, a lot of movies, I mean, they don't really handle sex very well. So... I would say that I would explain to children what sex is, but I would want to make sure that they have the tools. Ideally, I want to be able to raise my kids. Yeah, ideally, when I have children, I'd want them to be educated enough to handle things. So, I, so if they're watching an R-rated movie with me at 10 years old, I wouldn't have to tell them to cover their eyes. They would understand what's happening, right? Whether it's a sex scene and they know, okay, this is gross, ew, they'll cringe. The same with the kids today cr kiss when, uh, cringe when there's a kiss scene on TV. Uh, maybe that'll happen. I, I care more about teaching them how to handle the tools or handle the things that are happening around them rather than just running away from them. Ask not for a lighter burden, but for a stronger back, if you will. Mm, interesting. Um, Have I moved you? What? Would you explain to your children uh, what sex is at the age of six? I, I I wouldn't because two reasons. One is I don't think they need to know at that age because I don't think they're horny mm -hmm. enough at that age to like for it to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when they okay. when they're like eleven or twelve and they they finally get like erections or something or you know mm -hmm. then I would explain to them. Though, mm -hmm. yeah, I think. They also might be smart enough to figure it out by themselves, maybe online. But another reason is... Would you want them to figure it out by themselves or by you telling them? Which would you prefer? <laughs> it's very awkward. It's a very awkward conversation to have. And my parents... Have, have, have your parents ever talked to you about it? Like, my parents never did. Like, I literally just figured it uh, out. So, like, I asked... So, I was like a precocious young child. So, when I was eight years old, I just asked my mom and she was like... She probably came to the same understanding as this. Like, if I don't tell him, he's going to find it out by himself. So, I might as well control the damage now. I learned it. I learned most of it when I was eight years old. Wow. Eight or nine. That's pretty young. Yeah. I don't think I learned it until... Actually, I think I learned... The Germans still beat me. <laughs> That's true. I I actually learned mine, like, reading a encyclopedia on biology. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah. Hmm. 
I, I also thing, remember right? sex is um, multiple things. Explaining, so I was in elementary school and I was explaining it to, like, after I found it, it was like exciting news to me. <laughs> and I explained it to all my carpool friends for swimming practice. And there's oh, a parent no. who's driving, obviously. And she was, she was like, no bathroom talk. <laughs> but I wonder, like, what's wrong with it? Especially since I was actually like, giving them accurate information like the penis goes into the vagina and etc like so so this is the thing right sex is multiple things it's a social experiment it's also biological action It, it it intersects multiple different understandings of human beings uh of the yeah. essence of humans if you will um, so it's why very important that in a class in sex ed we also explain to people what consent is Right. A lot of people, a lot of men, too, don't really have an understanding for what consent is. A very good one. So understanding when is something coercive, when is, some, when is a person capable of consenting, what exactly consent looks like, uh, the fact that you need an affirm, affirmative yes in order to do something. Those lessons are stuff that we need to teach properly. Those are social lessons. We need to teach people how to interact with each other, socialize them, if you will. Those types of discussions you're not really going to get from a scientific textbook. That's not the job of a scientific textbook. Mm-hmm. So once again, we're at this place where children are going to learn about sex. Do you want it to be from porn or from you? Wait, how, how does that have to do with the social aspect? Like, so, so porn I thought, porn I thought where you're going to it, it's an art, was... It's an art form. Um, that one of the reasons why maybe it's taboo to talk about children is because i mean talk about sex to children is because it's very complicated in terms of the social aspect so even though it's very simple biologically they might not be ready to understand the social implications of it yeah so that that's part of it right so you need to start giving them to them in ways that they can understand it Right. If a kid asks you what is gravity, are you going to explain to them, oh, gravity is when we have particles that uh, go through the <laughs> Einstein-Rosen bridge. I, I don't actually know what gravity is. Uh, it has something to do with mass, mm-hmm. kind of. Not, I don't know. Uh, no, we would just tell them, okay, gravity is an attractive force between two things. The more massive two things are, the stronger they attract from each other. Right? We, we don't give them the complete technical information but we give them enough for them to understand it. So when people, when a kid asks you, what is sex? Right, this is a tough mm-hmm. conversation to have. But you would probably start introducing it as, okay, sex is, an, in, is uh, an activity that people, consenting adults, do in order to show how much they love each other, how close they are to each other. And there are different ways that sex can happen. Sometimes it's two men, sometimes it's two women, sometimes it's a man and a woman. And it can have different examples, but just um, but you start giving them all the tools, the, all the pieces to start understanding what sex is, how it's there's an etiquette to it, similar to any other social activity, whether it's fine dining or playing a sport, and you start creating the space for them to start understanding it. Uh, it is, sex is complicated. It is very complicated, but it's complicated because people are complicated, and I think. One of the best things we can do in teaching children is teaching them how to deal with complicated things. So it's very hard to create a good curriculum that works for every child. Um, 
But I think we need to start making those steps of teaching children. Mm, so, so how does that... Does that make sense? What is your ultimate conclusion for like how we should teach children? Should we, or like what age should we teach them? Like what's your ultimate normative claim? I think we'll need to run different models on this because it's something we'll need a bit of an experiment on this. We'll need to push for comprehensive sex ed for children at the age, as, as soon of an age as possible. We should obviously start by sometimes yeah, the age yeah. of 10 or 11 and then slowly start going lower and lower if possible. Um, we need to create material that makes it very easy for children to understand this. Uh, we should also create the social conditions where sex is not a taboo. Mm-hmm. Right? Ideally, we want kids to look at, talk about sex as not something intriguing and adult, but something kind of boring and mundane. I don't want to live in a world where children are more interested in talking about sex than about their favorite TV show. Just because sex is do you taboo, think that's, and no one else will give them answers. Do you think that's the case that it's um, that is taboo and, and and interesting because it's taboo? Or sorry, that doesn't make sense. Or or yes. it's interesting that it's taboo, or is it interesting because it's like inherently very exciting and pleasurable? So sex isn't sex is exciting, but the fact that we made it taboo, we did both. We both made it exciting and taboo. That makes it, that's a double mm-hmm. whammy right yeah. there. You're making it super this interesting. Sort of... now. If sex Sorry. is inherently pleasurable. Yeah, if sex is inherently pleasurable, but it's also yeah. cool, and at the same time, you shouldn't do it, okay, you just made it the coolest thing ever for children. They're not going to yeah. stop thinking about it, or stop asking about it, or stop looking this is for it. Almost exactly analogous to the drug thing that we were talking about, where like it's inherently pleasurable to. Yeah, sex, drugs, but and at the same time, you know, the illegality and the taboo surrounding it makes it even more exciting. And the question is whether or not, like, making it more accessible, making it um, more less stigmatized, will actually make things better or not. And I think mm-hmm. we both agree that, at least for me, I'm weakly. I weakly agree with you that it's uh, better to be more open and free on this for both topics Mm -hmm. yeah yeah again there's no like clear cut there's no clear cut answer there's just a direction we need to move towards and we'll sometimes not know if we've overshot it we'll have to course correct later on but we need to start moving the direction of making these things more access accessible open and something we can talk about All right, Daniel, you want to hit us up with our last topic of the day? This is very unrelated to all of our previous topics, but this is about gloves and how they suck right now and how we can make them better. So there are two problems I see with sparring gloves today uh, that, you know, the the important part about sparring gloves uh, is not, you know, how they protect you but how they protect your sparring partner um you want to minimize the concussive mm-hmm. damage to them um because as we know cte mm-hmm. cte is a huge problem and you don't even need to get knocked out to uh become retarded later in life 
eloquently, <laughs> Daniel. Yeah. Um, so, the first problem I see is that the metric for safety we use right now is based on ounces. So, we generally regard 16 ounces as the safest glove. They're the biggest. 14 ounces is mm -hmm. less safe, and then so on until we get to four ounce gloves or bare knuckle, where, you know, uh, you're, you're pretty much not allowed to spar with them because there's not enough padding. So there is a correlation between the weight of the glove and the protection it provides, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, and I think a lot of glove manufacturers uh, misuse this, this metric um, by making gloves heavier while not actually increasing the padding. And that's very maddening because it's, it's pretty obvious that mm -hmm. the heavier the gloves are, given the same padding, will have greater impact when you hit someone. And, and some people say, okay, but heavier gloves make the punches slower and so you get hit less and thus take less damage. But mm -hmm. isn't the point of sparring to recreate the fight as realistically as possible? Ideally, you would want the punches coming at you as fast as possible with the least amount of damage so that you can realistically train your timing and movement and stuff like that, right? So if you have heavier gloves, you'd either have to punch slower in order to, to have the same amount of damage as the lighter gloves or punch at the same speed, but you know, obviously deal more damage. So both are worse than just mm. having lighter gloves with the same amount of padding. So this 16 ounce like standard for sparring gloves needs to go away because I think we can definitely make sparring gloves lighter with the technology, the like materials that we have now, um, while still having the same amount of padding. And I think that will make things a lot safer. Um, another uh, problem is also we use the size of the glove as a metric, but it makes blocking very unrealistic. So for example, I have gloves right here. These are twins, uh, Muay Thai gloves, 16 mm -hmm. ounce, and they're huge as fuck. Look at this. This is my fist. Oh, this wow. is how big it is. It's literally two or three mm -hmm. times bigger than my fist. And so in boxing and Muay Thai, sometimes we cover up like this, right? But do you see this huge mm -hmm. triangle right here? Like if I do this, the punch yeah. will just go straight through. But if I'm wearing this, I don't have the other glove with me right now, but imagine I have both right here. This like protects so much more. And if the other person with yeah, the same glove, punching with a glove? Blocks, it just bounces off the form. And it, it's, mm -hmm. it's so frustrating whenever you watch MMA fighters like who probably train in these big gloves, like they get hurt and they're just like, oh, <laughs> and then they just get hit like immediately. It, it's so frustrating. Like if you have small, if you train with smart, smaller gloves, then you're forced to parry more. You're forced to, instead of just doing this, you have to go like this and like that in order to block. Mm -hmm. And also it'll mm -hmm. uh, force you to use your head movement more. Uh, and, and you're not mm -hmm. just going to stand in front like trading punches like this so unrealistic. So that's another mm -hmm. thing. S we need to make smaller gloves with the same amount of padding. Um, and lastly, there's a problem of the location of the padding. 
so here we have the <laughs> twins gloves again there's so much padding all around the glove which i feel like is unnecessary because you're not going to be you're not going to punch someone with this part of the glove or this part of the glove I, I understand why you'd have padding here because you know in case you eat a head kick you need to block it but but i think primarily you'd want like 90 percent of the padding to be at the front but i i don't think this glove does it sufficiently um mm -hmm. so in summary the goal is to make gloves that are small compact and as light as possible while maximizing the amount of padding in the right places um mm -hmm. <clears throat> another idea that i have is uh, a foam gradient which means to have a softer foam at the outer edge of the padding and denser foam at the center and, and the reason for this is um well, I have to kind of go into the physics of this, but basically, uh, let me give you an example. A car crashing against the highway crumple zone. The crumple zone has to be mm -hmm. very hard and, you know, it, it's metal. Like, if you hit your head on that crumple mm -hmm. zone, you knock yourself out. But a car crashing into mm -hmm. it and you watch it, it looks like it's just, it's hitting a pillow. Just because the car is moving at such a, high momentum that it needs that mm -hmm. density in order to actually cushion it so with mm -hmm. if, if you're doing really hard sparring you need more dense padding but if you're doing more light sparring mm -hmm. it's actually better to have softer padding and so i think it would be very interesting and effective if we have separate gloves for different kinds of sparring so if you're only doing touch sparring I think it'd be very awesome to have uh, a pair of gloves, particularly with m softer padding. Uh, and then if you want to do hard sparring, you can have um, harder padding. And maybe you can have a combination of both where you have gradient, like I said, where the outer layer is, is uh, softer and then gradually it becomes more dense as you get close to the knuckles. So those are my ideas on improving the design of sparring gloves. And I think it's time for uh, the martial arts community to pick up their game. So what do you think of these changes? So here's the thing, right? Pros usually have multiple forms of gloves, They but they don't usually designate them between different types of sparring. They have bag gloves, which they hit the bag with, and then they have sparring gloves, and then they have pad gloves, and they have as many pairs as they need. So effectively what you're saying is, bag gloves, gloves where the foam is degraded over time to the point where it's super soft, great for hitting the bag, those would probably be what we use for light sparring, touch sparring. And the denser foams, thicker denser foams that are around the knuckles, those go into our more hard sparring. A few times when we need to hard spar as a combat sport athlete, I presume. I think that there's a bit of a problem here, and this is something that I've noticed. I don't know how true it is, but the anecdote is that boxing is far more dangerous than MMA because of the size of the gloves. The more padding allows people to get hit harder and take more hits than in MMA and bare knuckle boxing, for example, where it might not just be the force of the hit to the head, 
but the number of successive blows. And I think the heavier the foam is, the more hits people will take, putting them in greater danger. I think we've had this yeah, conversation before. Yeah, and I disagree before. with that. You would rather be knocked out. You would rather be knocked out by Francis Ngannou in one punch, than go through a twenty-five minute war with Max Holloway. I think one would be more dangerous to your brain, and that's probably Max Holloway. So if that's the case, having thicker padding where people can take more hits might end up being counterproductive and causing more brain damage and more injuries to the athletes. And I really don't know how to answer this so question. So here's the thing. You're comparing the padding. Well, first of all, I actually disagree that boxing is more dangerous because of the padding, actually. I think boxing is just more okay. dangerous because you're trying to hit each other in the head more than, for example, in MMA. There's various different ways to win. You can submit them. You can, uh, you can go to the legs, mm -hmm. you know. Like, there's way more targets and so you're getting hit in the head way less in mma sparring in mma you can get kicked in the head which is we yeah, all know is way yeah. more force than a punch that too i guess but but i think the punches i mean the strikes to the head is still like significantly less in mma than in boxing i i think i also experience that when i'm when i'm sparring i i think i get hit in the head like probably like twice more when boxing than um than MMA sparring. But another thing is that um, in sparring, it's a different uh, because you're not going full out. And so, so for example, you're saying that more, wait, so you're saying that more padding is worse because you're not going to get knocked out, so the fight's not going to get stopped, right? But so you... In the training room. What? In the training room. What do you mean in the training room? So I think more padding might be counterproductive in the training room because people might end up going harder on each other uh, and causing more brain damage because they can't necessarily feel the pain or they're protected from the pain. But that is my worry. Okay, that that makes sense, but <laughs> but wait, I'm trying to phrase it. I'm, I'm trying it to it's phrase hard it. to test. Um, but given the same amount of damage, like let's say, given the same amount of concussive damage, if you have padded gloves, you're able to go more realistically, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So if you are rational about it, then it, it makes sense for more protective gloves to protect you more. So you can like meet in the middle. So you can either like, so you can either have no gloves and touch each other with the same mm -hmm. amount of force. Or you can have padded, very padded, mm -hmm. very safe gloves and punch each other with the same amount of force. And obviously that's going to be safer, right? Or, no, like literally like you, you, you're punching the same speed. That's going to be safer. Same intensity. You don't increase the intensity. But you can also increase mm -hmm. the intensity to the point where you feel like you are doing the same amount of damage as if you had no gloves and you're hitting them 
straight on with the bare knuckles. So that extreme is obviously you might be testing the limits and you might actually overcompensate. You know, you might that that's mm-hmm. what you mean, right? But I think you can meet in the middle where you go like, okay, now that I have this padded gloves, I can go a little harder, but I, but only mm-hmm. to the extent that I know for sure that it's less hard, that it's less damaging than than the the bare knuckles. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you do that, you necessarily uh, improve the damage control. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's different in a fight because in a fight you're going. In a fight, you're gonna get knocked out, and so, well, not you're not you, you're not going to get knocked out necessarily, but if you get knocked out, the fight stops, and so, it's different because when the fight stops, then you don't have to take any more punishment for the rest of the rounds, and so that's the comparison. So if if you made the comparison where you get knocked out and then you have to get back up and fight again, and last mm-hmm. all twenty five rounds then I'd say bare knuckle is much more dangerous. But the whole point is that with gloves, you're able to take more punishment without getting knocked out, and so the fight doesn't get stopped, and so you get more punishment. But in sparring, that's a different comparison, because mm. you're going to go for the same distance. There's no like stopping point based on you reach a certain threshold, and then it goes to zero. So I view this from the same way that Trevor Whitman views it, and I think he laid a very compelling argument that the true cost of fighting is not in the fighting itself, but in the preparations for the fighting, the training. So I do agree that we'll probably need to do some experiments on this and do some more research on this, but we should train in the way that is the most safe yeah. for the fighters. And then in terms of competition, that might be a little different. I think there is some merit in trying to emulate fighting the exact same way, with the exact same gloves, as you would in, uh, comp- in, in training. But that type of analysis is going to be much more complicated. I would say this, just from the standpoint, until I see more data, I think that for the most part, more padding would be more dangerous. But I also agree with you that more sparring should be light touch contact uh, the same way that the ties train, which is not exactly hitting each other or trying to kill each other, but very playful. And I think up until we have better research, that might need to be the pejorative, uh, the overwhelming consensus on how we train. I would love to do more research on this, and we should totally try doing experimentation on this. That's a good yeah. idea for a follow-up video. All right. All right, so Daniel, uh, how do we fix this? What do you think the UFC, MMA in general, boxing, what do you think the commissions should do? Well, first of all, I think you're sort of conflating the issue of going hard sparring versus light sparring because I completely agree with you that like hard sparring, uh, probably people do it too much. And mm-hmm. like you said, a lot of the damage isn't even from the fights itself, but from the training. But mm-hmm. I feel like you're conflating that with the issue of uh, heavy padded gloves and light padded because you have to you have to use the the old like logical reasoning of holding a other factor constant while changing the okay yeah. the, the, the account for confounding yeah, variables yeah, exactly I see. so like 
if you're holding the intensity of sparring constant, obviously the more padded you have it, uh, the more padded the gloves are, the safer it is going to be. So I agree. Unless I agree with this part, which is that you might be psychologically inclined to go harder mm -hmm. if you have more padded gloves. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we should have less padded gloves. Mm -hmm. That just means that you have to be more rational about like being conscious of the fact that you have more padded gloves, but that doesn't mean that you have to overcompensate. You can meet it in the middle somewhere. And so I, I, I can think, agree with that. I think maybe like the culture needs to change where we go light, but also have the maximum protection. So it's best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, I just noticed there's been a constant trend between all four topics where we're saying that there's a problem. The solution isn't to ban it or to change it or do massive regulations, but just to change how we approach it culturally. Mm, interesting, yeah. So I think this dialectic is accomplishing its goal. Yeah. Awesome. But back onto the topic of this. So what do you want from Dana White? What do you want him to do? Listen up, Dana. This man's give dropping some bombs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a professional fighter. I actually, I mean, I don't really know um, what it takes to get good because some people say you have to hard spar in order to get the timing. Because obviously, if you're going slow, you can slip easily, you can block slowly. So you have to hard spar in order to get the timing down, get your confidence, get used to getting hit and not, you know, panicking. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think it's very important that we are, that, that it, it, I think it's very important to look at the science of brain damage. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not even very clear right now. So I think there's a lot of ambiguity, which is making these decisions hard to make. But I think once we get more data on like, what exactly is the acceptable level of damage to, or, or impacts the head so that we, so that fighters don't get CT in the future. Mm -hmm. um, once we figure out that level, then we can translate that to the intensity of sparring. And so I think the scientific data will make things clearer. But I'm if I'm if I were to guess, I think we're probably going too hard right now. Mm -hmm. Most fighters are sparring too hard. And, I, and look at personally Yeah, like when I spar with Jeffrey, for example, like no touch spar, I, I know you kind of disagree with me on this, but mm -hmm. I actually learn a lot more when doing that than actual sparring because I'm not in the mindset of oh fuck I'm gonna get hit if I slip into this right hand like I just slip into the right hand because I I'm just testing like okay if I slip this way like will I get hit if I get hit it's fine like let me just slip a little bit deeper and then mm -hmm. I'll get past it so like I don't have this constant fear of getting hit so I can experiment I can play around it's like if all of your if you're, you're, you're a piano player and if all of your practicing is, I just activated Siri, okay. If all of your piano practicing is on stage in front of the public and you're nervous every single time you're doing it, you're not gonna improve because you don't have the opportunity to be bad and make mistakes mm -hmm. because mistakes are necessary for 
learning. And so I think in the developmental phase of your, your technique, I think it's very important to have no stakes level of play where even if you make a mistake, you're not going to get punished at all for it. And that's where light sparring and no touch sparring comes into it. Uh, so, so I think on some level you're right, but I also know for a fact that the best lessons are learned with pain. If you're punished for your bad mistakes, uh, I'll give you an example. I was rolling with a, a friend of mine from jiu-jitsu. His name is Ben. The dude's huge, bigger than me, so strong. I told him, I have this perpetual problem of whenever I go for my single legs or my double legs, my head is on the wrong side. I told him, punish me if that happens. He put me in a guillotine so bad I almost vomited afterwards. <laughs> but him doing that to me taught me how to keep my head in proper position. So that lesson with pain kind of helped me yeah. in development, whereas thousands of hours of light yeah. sparring mm -hmm. would not have helped me fix that problem. Exactly. And I made, think, may have made it worse. I think here's the thing, like light sparring and no touch sparring is where you develop your, your hypotheses and then mm -hmm. you test the hypotheses in, in actual sparring. So I think like the ratio can be like 90% light sparring and then 10% you test if the things that you figured out actually work in actual mm -hmm. sparring. Goddamn, we're making fighting sound so dull and boring. <laughs> it's all science and math at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, we need to do more research on this. This is, this is the kind of topic which we're going to have to visit multiple times across multiple sessions. We're going to have to test our null hypotheses, if you will. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Dialectic. Now, this will be cut up into multiple pieces, released over and we'll give the whole podcast for you to listen to. It's a huge benefit for us if you like, comment, and subscribe. It makes it easier for this podcast to hit as many people as possible, for us to gain the notoriety, for us to continue talking about the fundamental myths of modernity and dig deeper into these topics that we don't really talk about in a very sens uh, sensitive and inquisitive way in our normal discourse. The goal of the dialectic is to challenge ideas and to find new ideas. And I hope that you would support me, Andre with Garg, and Daniel my co-host in order to keep doing this. <laughs>